Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Harvest City Church. My name is Glenn Blakeney, and I am so glad that you've joined us here today. How many know that Jesus is still alive and he's still everywhere by his Holy Spirit? So he's with you wherever you are right now. He's here, he's everywhere, but he's especially in the heart of his people. He dwells in our midst is what the Bible says. And we're actually in a series right now on pursuing the presence of God. And uh, last Sunday, we actually started off by looking at Isaiah chapter 60, the first two verses. And I want to just point our attention to that text again. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. There in this text, inherent and embedded in this text, is actually a conflict between two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. Of course, the Bible is very clear that the enemy has an agenda. His plan is that darkness would cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord has called us, He's called you and me, to arise and shine because His glory, His light is risen over us. His glory is seen upon us. So we recognize what Satan's agenda is to cover the earth with darkness, to cover the people with deep darkness. But elsewhere in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. So the Lord's plan is to fill the earth, not just with the glory, but with the knowledge or an awareness of His glory. So the enemy has his plan. God has his will. Ultimately, we are called to cast the decisive vote. We're called to pray. We're called to, to engage in spreading the gospel, which is called the gospel of glory, so that the blindness that, that has covered people, so they're not able to see that darkness is uh, driven out of their lives. It's dispelled by the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for the most part, when you look around the world today, you see much darkness, much darkness. There are very few places in the world today where we could say unequivocally that the glory of the gospel is just permeated that city, that nation. There's still, thank God for those nations that have turned to the Lord and and there's a great majority of people that really are worshiping God in spirit and truth. But in many places today, there is great darkness or gross darkness. Why is that? I believe because traditional Christianity has focused so much on just filling church buildings, on gathering people. But the Bible is very clear that the true mission of the Lord is to fill each one of us, to fill His church, the church is His people, with the fullness of himself, his glory and power. And isn't it interesting that in this day right now, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, that we right now are not able to gather together, but yet the Bible is clear that the Lord is with us. We are his church. We're his people. He lives in us and God can still use us and he wants to use us. And he wants us to experience him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 
speaks of the last days, and it says that one of the things that will characterize people in the last days is that they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Another translation says they have a form, a semblance, a facade of godliness, but they deny the power. I, I was thinking about that, you know, some of the cities in North America, in particular in the United States, that have uh, the most churches, the most amount of Christians, actually have the highest crime rate overall. They're located in the Bible Belt, and Dallas-Fort Worth, for example, has more Christians than any other city, but it has also one of the worst overall crime rates for a city of more than a million people. So what does that mean? So many Christians, so many churches, ministries, but yet so much evil, so much crime, so much darkness still happening in that culture, in that society. Why is that? Because we have a form of godliness, but the real power, the real glory is missing. We're focusing on shooting at the wrong target, so to speak. So what do we need to do is we need to really recalibrate ourselves, the church as a whole. We need to retrofit, so to speak, the church so that we go back to the original design, God's original intention for us. And of course, that would be the book of Genesis. When you read in particular in the book of Genesis, the first chapter, we see that God uh, called us. He created the man and the woman. The Bible says in his image and in his likeness and to exercise dominion over all of creation. Isaiah 43 verse 7 kind of gives a little bit of a different perspective, but essentially is saying the same thing. That God says, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So God created every one of us for his glory. We were created to know him, to walk with him. So his image and his likeness speaks of his glory. I love Genesis 1.26 in the message. The message paraphrases this first, but it's very ac accurate, actually. It says this, God spoke, and what did he say? He said, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature. Make them reflecting our nature. So God in the beginning created us in his image and likeness, but the Hebrew language actually speaks about that he made us to reflect or to display his image. That's an amazing thing. God has given us that mandate, that responsibility to manifest, to demonstrate right from the very beginning his likeness and his image on the earth. There's a lot we could say about that, but Jesus came as the second Adam, which means this, the first Adam had failed, he sinned. And the Bible says as a result of that, when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus came as the second Adam. He, um, was, he never sinned, and he lived in the fullness of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So he showed us, he modeled how man is supposed to live, a man who, had, who is, was sinless and a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and entirely yielded to the will of his father. So that is the mandate that Adam had received as well, Adam and Eve. And they were to not only 
manifest His glory, but they were to exercise dominion over all of creation. Now, when you fast forward into the new covenant, when Jesus came to the earth, He not only came to show us, but He came to restore to us. He came to restore to us that original uh, relationship that Adam and Eve had experienced. Now, I'm not saying that we will... Um, and we'll live that out in its fullness, in its entirety here in this age. I realize there's a resurrection coming. I realize that when we're resurrected, then at that point we experience the fullness of the glory. The scripture talks all about that. But I do know that the New Testament also speaks very, very clearly that we individually and the church collectively have been created anew in Christ Jesus to become the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 22. The church is Christ's body. Jesus is the head of the church. We are His body. Ephesians 1, 23, listen to this, in the message says, the church is Christ's body in which He speaks and acts, by which He fills everything with His presence. Wow. That's powerful. He fills everything with His presence. Remember, the earth is to be filled with the knowledge or an awareness of the glory of God. How does He do that? He fills everything with His presence through His church, through His people. That's His plan. So what happens when Jesus came and He died on the cross and He was resurrected? The Bible says in Matthew 28, 18 that He said, All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And he was saying that the authority, what had been lost, what had been forfeited as a result of sin, that he came to restore that. And I love Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Paul says this, Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Romans 8, 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, that whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image or to uh, the likeness of God Himself. So we were born again. We were created anew, recreated even in Christ Jesus to be uh, conformed to His image and likeness, in His image and likeness. Now, when, we, when that happens, when we realize what has occurred at the cross and that we have been made as new creations, and that we are called to manifest the very glory of God. We're called to carry His presence, carry His glory, to reflect that in the midst of the dark world in which we live. Then we realize that there is a higher responsibility that is placed upon us as Christians. Our responsibility has to do, first of all, with getting to that place where we understand and um, the revelation, because revelation is very important. If you don't know what God expects of you, how will you ever live that out? But once you know what He expects of you, then what ends up happening is you can begin to manifest. So revelation always precedes manifestation. So what has God called us to do? Well, interestingly, I want you to think about the story of Moses. Moses was called by the Lord to go to the top of Mount Sinai. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights in the very presence of the Lord. And when he was up there, we know, of course, that God gave him the Ten Commandments. 
And God certainly wants us to keep his commands. It's, it's very clear the moral commandments are still, um, you know, uh, obligatory for us today in the New Testament. But more than that, we saw in a previous session that God gave Moses the pattern or the blueprints to build what would be known as the tabernacle or sanctuary, according to Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. And why did he want Moses to build a sanctuary? He said, Moses, tell the people of Israel to build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. I want to have relationship with my people. So what had been forfeited in the garden, first of all, was intimacy with the Father. God came into the garden. There was fellowship, communion with Adam and Eve. Of course, when they sinned, they lost the glory. They lost the authority that they once had. Satan became known as the prince of this world, or the God, the prince of the power of the air, the, the God of this world, and so on. So Jesus came to restore that. He came to restore the glory. He came to restore the authority. But here's where we often miss it. The whole original plan of God, the original uh, principle, really, of how this would, was experienced by Adam and Eve came out as a result of their communion or their intimacy with God. So in the New Testament, the Bible is very clear that Jesus restores the glory to us so that we may know him that we may be one with him. You can look at John chapter 17, verse 3, John chapter 17, verse 22. It talks all about that. So he restores that relationship so we can experience the glory, we can experience the power, but ultimately so that we can know him. In fact, eternal life is defined as knowing him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. Now, here's Moses. He's on top of the mountain with God. He's in his presence. He comes down, and he, his face is shining. We know the story. And what ends up happening, of course, is he puts a veil over his face. And it's very interesting. When you read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about how Moses covered his face with a veil. But he says something very intriguing. He references that the purpose or the reason for Moses veiling his face was to shield the children of Israel from seeing that the glory was fading under the Old Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, as, as magnificent, as brilliant, as splendid as that glory was, God says it was a fading glory because the Holy Spirit could not live permanently in people at that time because Jesus hadn't dealt with the sin issue, hadn't gone to the cross. And, and so the Holy Spirit came upon people, but he could not abide or, or remain in us at that point. So what happens in the new covenant is Jesus deals with the sin issue, what separates us from God so that we can be eternally reconciled to God and that we can actually go from one level of glory to the next. So looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, again, the context is all about Moses having this encounter with God and how his face shone. And this is what it says. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So where the Spirit of the Lord is moving, but actually the original language means this, that where the Spirit is Lord, where the Spirit is made 
to be Lord, where we acknowledge Him as Lord and we allow the Holy Spirit to govern our lives, to control our lives, to, so that we're submitted, we're led by the Holy Spirit and we're completely yielded to the will of God. There is freedom. There is glorious freedom. And then he says this in verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We contemplate the Lord's glory. Very interesting. He says in the new covenant, we have an unveiled face. We have access to this glory. And so what happens is he says we contemplate the Lord's glory. The word contemplate here is a very interesting term. It means to behold and to reflect. So it's actually like looking in a mirror where you behold, but then you also reflect. So you can see the image, you can see your face, but you also are reflecting. So that's the idea. So he's saying when we behold God's glory, when we behold God's face, we actually reflect his face. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. While Moses was on top of Mount Sinai, he was there with God. He was in the very presence of God. He spent time with God, beholding God, beholding His face. And, and what ends up happening is when He came down from that mountain, the people looked and they saw that His face was shining. It's just the natural outcome of beholding His face. So we all, with an unveiled face, we contemplate the Lord's glory. So we, we see His glory, we behold it, but we also reflect it. And then here's what happens. When we seek the face of God, this is my point. When we behold the face of God, this is what it says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Wow. We're transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. One translation says we go from glory to glory as we behold His face. We're transformed by this glory, and we go from one level of glory to the next level of glory. We're talking about beholding the face of God. It's interesting, in the Bible, there are many, many times where Scripture enjoins us to seek God's face. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in Psalm 105, verse 4. It says, seek the Lord and His strength. But then it says this, seek His face evermore. Isn't that interesting? So seek the Lord, seek His strength, but how do we do that? It's through seeking His face is what the writer is actually saying. As we seek His face, we experience Him, we experience His strength, His power, and so on. So many times in the Bible, we are instructed to seek the face of God. We know the verse in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, I'll heal their sins. In the Hebrew language, the word face is often translated presence. So to seek the face of God means to seek the very person or the very presence of God. But I want you to think about it this way. A person's face reveals much about his or her character and personality. We see the inward emotions of a person expressed outwardly on their face. In fact, the eyes are the gateway to the soul, the Bible says. So we can recognize a person 
by their face. We, we see their face. We recognize a person. So the face is very, very powerful. In a sense, one's face represents the whole person. So the writers of the Bible, when they speak about seeking after the face of God, they're saying that we need to actually seek after God himself. It's an amazing thing. You know, I love that prayer that is found in Numbers chapter 6. It's actually the prayer of Aaron. It's a blessing over the children of Israel. And he says this, that the Lord bless you and keep you and the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now, here's the interesting thing. When it says the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, the word peace is shalom, which means that everything is whole. It speaks of, of uh, healing, of wholeness, of protection, of preservation, nothing missing in your life, nothing broken, but everything complete, everything whole. That's the meaning of the word. It's a perfect peace that is not just emotionally, but has to do with our entire person. So this happens as God causes his face to shine upon us and as his countenance is upon us. As we seek his face, we see his face. And as we see his face, we are, we are transformed into his image and likeness. We experience his blessing, his wholeness, but we also reflect that to others. You know, neurologists have found that there's actually uh, a joy spot in uh, our brains. And, and they saw this as particularly in babies. So when uh, a baby looks in the face of its parent, for example, you know how the baby will, will laugh and smile. And there's a particular joy spot in the brain that is activated as a result of seeing the face of the parent, of having that face-to-face -face encounter. It's a powerful thing. How much more for us when we behold the face of our God, when we seek the face of our God, the fullness of our salvation is experienced and not only experienced by us, but also we can cause other people to see Christ in us. We can reflect his image, his likeness, which we were created to do, which Adam and Eve was made in his image and likeness so that others can see Christ in us as well. But it comes as a result of beholding his face, of seeking his face. And when we spend time seeking after the very person of God, seeking after the very presence of God, rather than just the things he can do for us, that's when transformation takes place. I want to close by sharing a quote from someone who, to me personally, is really uh, one of the greatest men of God that I've come to admire. He's uh, a gentleman who went home to be with the Lord over close to 100 years ago. And he was a former Hindu in India who ended up turning to Christ. His name was Sadhu Sundar Singh. And this man was, had an amazing revelation of who Jesus was. He was greatly misunderstood by Western Christians in particular because he didn't want to adopt the Western culture. He, he felt he could live as an Indian man and still be a follower of Christ. And certainly he was a follower of Christ. He was not engaged in idolatry or anything like that. So he had great understanding in particular, a very profound revelation 
of what it means to have a personal relationship with the Lord. He was a man who people um, would easily, readily acknowledge that Christ was in him, no matter all the different people he encountered. People would always comment. There was always an acknowledgement that this man manifested the very character and nature of Christ wherever he went. Here's what Sadhu Sundar said about what it means to seek the face of God. He said, the essence of prayer does not consist in asking God for something, but in opening our hearts to God, in speaking with Him and living with Him in perpetual communion. Prayer does not mean asking God for all kinds of things we want. Prayer is rather the desire for God Himself, the only giver of life. Prayer is the desire to possess God Himself, the source of all life. The true spirit of prayer does not consist in asking for blessings, but in receiving Him who is the giver of all blessings and in living a life of fellowship with Him. As we learn how to pursue the very person and presence of God, not just seeking after the promises, the provision, the things that He can give us, but we seek after Him. God has called us into intimate relationship. The goal of salvation, first and foremost, is to be reconciled to relationship with the Lord. Out of that, He provides for us. From that place of communion and intimacy with Him, where we're one with Him, all of our needs are met. But our calling is to be a people that seek after the face of God. As we seek after His face, we will experience all that He's promised for us. He will cause us to know the fullness of His power, His joy, His peace, His love, and we will manifest that wherever we go. There is so much more that God wants to do in this day and age in which we live. We are in a time where we ought not to shrink back, but we should shine forth the glory of God. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. At Kroger, fresh groceries are our thing, so we check your delivery order for freshness at every step from farm to store and pick and pack every veggie in your free pickup order with care because we treat your food the way we'd want ours to be treated. We're fresh every day, so shop anyway. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Now's the time to stock up and save during the Kroger Big Pack Sale. You'll get big deals on big packs of hundreds of items throughout the store. Kroger, fresh for everyone.